from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Welcome to Psych Health and Safety in Canada podcast. I am your host, Marianne Baton, and I'm really thrilled today to welcome my guest, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Stéphane Grenier. Stéphane is the founder and lead innovator at Mental Health Innovations, but he's done a little bit more than that. He um, was on the Workforce Advisory Committee at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. He is um, a doctor of laws, an honorary degree, He uh, is also, as of 2018, an appointee to the Order of Canada. He wrote this amazing book um, called After the War, Surviving PTSD. And Stefan is somebody who has inspired and educated me very much over the last decade or so. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear from him and learn from him and be inspired by him. So welcome, Stefan. Wow, thank you very much, Marianne. (laughs) Glad to be here. Yes. So let's start with your long and winding road to psychological health and safety in the workplace. How did you first get to learn about that term and uh, to be involved in that area? Well, you'll recall, Marianne, that where we met was on the Workforce Advisory Committee at the Commission. And at the time, there was a gentleman that was there, uh, Dr. Ian Arnold, and uh, I had had a a little bit of a career before I sat on that Workforce Advisory Committee. And because of his background and his profession, you know, occupational health and safety, and that this this whole notion that there was occupational health and safety and ISO standards started appearing on my radar at the time. And uh, I remember at a particular meeting uh, that you were at in in Toronto somewhere, where in my brain, I was sort of thinking, well, we have standards for all sorts of things, you know, toilet seats and heights of this and steel toe boots. Why is it that there's no standard, you know, and uh, that was that was my inside voice. Right. So I remember I remember actually. I don't remember what building we're in, but I, or the day or the date, but I remember the setting when that notion gelled in my mind and then in my mind, right? And the committee was talking about things. And, and, and so that's the first time. So this would have been over a decade ago, I guess. But, but I have to say, I was a rookie at, at this health and safety stuff. Uh, ironically, coming from the military, uh, I, I, I really had no clue about health and safety if you think about it, right, in that way, which is really ironic, because we probably need a lot of health and safety focus at the time. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think all of us around that table had a bit of the imposter syndrome, that we were all doing something bigger than any one of us uh, really had a grasp on at the time. And it was that synergy, that learning from each other that uh, allowed us to, I think, accomplish so much. So let's, let's talk a little bit 
Stefan, about your experience with the Department of Defense and how that um, brought you uh, to that table. Right. So, you know, the first part of my career in the military was as a, uh, a young leader. You know, I, I've been a boss my entire life, uh, hopefully not too much of a bad boss, but I've, you know, from, from the age of think 19 or 20, I had people under my command, right? So I was a boss my entire life. And so the first part of my military career was in those traditional army settings, you know, the movies you see and people, you know, running in the field with boots, dirty boots. And right. So we call that the combat arms or a very granular industry, right? Very blue collar fighters and, and a very male dominated. There were no women in the combat arms in those days, right? In the eighties, it was cold war. The second part of my career uh, was was spent um, uh, deploying all over the world, really. Uh, so the next 10 years of my career was deploying all over the, uh, the world where something happened to me. In one of those deployments, I came back a very different person that had shipped off 10 months before, right? And this is how I discovered a little bit uh, the vulnerabilities that I, who was completely oblivious to the reality that I now understand that the brain can be become ill or the brain can be injured. And, and so returning from that deployment was a, a grueling period of time afterwards to, to not sink too low and, and, and to try to recover. And that offered me the opportunity to, to do some, some, some important work, I think, at National Defense inside my workplace, where some one of our leaders, a three-star general, said, that's ah, a good idea, Stefan. You know, I, I really believe that that's what we need. And that leader... Uh, provided me the soil to sow some some seeds that grew into some pretty solid programs today that have nothing to do with treatment and pharmacology. It's it's all about the non-clinical aspects, the leadership, the culture of the organization, and how we we interact with each other and how we, the lay people, understand these these issues, right? And that led me to go to the commission. Uh, and uh, and that led me to leave the military and start my own company now. So that's sort of my trajectory, Marianne. So uh, in there, you haven't heard me say any university degrees of any sort. Uh, my university is the university of life. I was never a good, a good kid in school, uh, not a good student, uh, but learned different ways of, of uh, yeah, of learning. So, yeah. Yes, I think credentialism is uh, sometimes a little misleading, right? That we can have lots of letters after our name and not be very emotionally intelligent and we can have none and we can change the world. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking back because there's so many things that you taught me. And uh, one of the things that I've just seen recently that they're learning to map is the concept of moral injury in the workplace. And I had never heard that until uh, you taught that to me. Can you share a little bit about what that is and why it matters? Right, and, and by the way, that's a very important question as far as I'm concerned, because inside a pandemic now, and I, I'm so okay, I'm dating your podcast, right? but inside a pandemic right now, we hear a lot about um, you know, the mental health impact on people and, and often the narrative pivots to something that we hear a lot around, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma. And uh, so if I back up, you know, a couple of decades, 
when I came back from Rwanda, my doctors, when I finally accepted that I needed to go see somebody and get help, were almost insistent in making me fit the trauma mold and give me a diagnosis of PTSD. And I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't realize it at the time and I wasn't fighting it. But when I look back with the clarity of hindsight, which was, uh, and it did not fit. Now, had I gone through in Rwanda over the last, that 11, close to 11 months, a lot of bad days, absolutely. Were some incidents potentially traumatic? Probably. But what I came back from Rwanda was an extremely conflicted human being who had witnessed and, and been in situations where I could not believe what was happening around me. Now, that, if we don't scratch below the surface, is, is easily comprehensible under the, the, the umbrella trauma, right? The reason why I feel the moral injury concept is so important and why I coined the term you know, operational stress injury and why that term was later defined as being multifactorial. And one of those factors could potentially be moral conflict and moral injury is the fact that when people go through hardship, I fundamentally believe it's not all trauma. That uh, having a bad day doesn't mean it's traumatic. So if you think of a nurse now exposed to COVID, if you think of a police officer involved in a shooting, right? Um, now, it's a really bad day. It's a bad experience. But when we wrap everything under a single banner of trauma, we, we end up um, uh, going down a trajectory, uh, I believe, of treatment, diagnosis, and, and a whole, the pathway to recovery is slightly different than if we really back out of that lens. And we start understanding that some people can be morally injured. And what I mean by that, the moral injury concept is born from my belief and born from the belief that human beings bring into the workplace, as an example of a situation, their own set of values, their own set of understanding of what, what, what is right and wrong. And for the most part, people who, who collectively work together agree on the big things, <laughs> the, the big right and wrong, but it's where the small things misalign. And so anytime a, a leader, a company, an organization makes a decision, I always think that, well, there's a third of the employees that are going to say, it's about time that decision is made. That was long in the coming. There's another third that probably don't care. And another third that will probably say, this is the stupidest thing I ever heard, right? We're dealing with humans. And these humans will factor in these different. So imagine you're an HR person in a, a car manufacturing plant, and you're asked to start the process of laying off 500 employees. Are you traumatized or are you conflicted? I think some of these people may be highly conflicted. It doesn't feel right. Something doesn't sit well. And when you have to do things or not do things that don't sit well, and you got to keep doing it because you got to put butter and bread on the table and pay the mortgage, there's an, there's an effect, there's an impact, right? So, so my motivation at the time for creating that concept was to parse out trauma from, from moral injury, because I felt I came back from Rwanda, a very morally conflicted, injured soul, maybe not that traumatized. And I'm not trying to be tough here, Marianne, right? There were some really traumatizing days, perhaps. 
But I don't think that's what kept me awake at night afterwards. It's the moral conflict that kept me awake. So can you explain a little more about what your moral conflict was? I know your story, but just so others can right. understand, what was that moral conflict that kept you up at night? Right. So I think for, for those who, who were watching the news or who knew in 1994 what was going on, quite clearly the genocide in Rwanda was, was not a pretty a place to be in 94 uh, and into, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that. For those who are, are too young to, to remember, um, you know, uh, look it up, the Rwanda genocide. So I was there during the genocide and after the genocide. And I think that what happens to the human psyche in a situation like that, a prolonged exposure to a set of circumstances that, um, and by the way, if I back up from Rwanda, we've all, you know, most people have traveled to a different country where you will see things that are shocking, either pleasantly or not pleasantly shocking, right? Or is surprising. And we've all come back from a trip where we wonder and we're, we're just, you know, and we wonder that's, that was interesting or that, that was weird. Or, and so imagine now when things are occurring on a scale that, that are in the realm of, of the completely unacceptable, such as the genocide, right? So the, the moral conflict sat with me for so many years and to this date, perhaps, because it's really hard for the brain to go from a, a young Canadian man growing up in Canada, going to a country where people are literally, you know, um, uh, killing each other with machetes, right? And family members are interkilling themselves, and and um, uh, and in the aftermath, and and everything that you witness, right? And so, while those scenes that you have seen, or you can Google and look at pictures of things that happen at the day. While when you see those things, those are outwardly traumatic scenes, what they do is they have a longer, more profound effect than being attacked by a wolf or being shot at. I've been shot at, uh, and that had an effect on me. But what had a profound effect on me is, is what the human being is potentially capable of, right? And the, uh, the inability to act uh, and sometimes moral conflict can be caused by what you're asked to do because it doesn't sit well. Or what about when you're asked not to do something? And we know that many of us could not intervene because it was illegal for us to intervene, right? So, um, so it's, it's hard to break it all down, I guess. But in that context, uh, it, I think it's, it's easy to comprehend. But what I want to say, Marina, is that you do not have to go to war to experience moral conflict. Uh, everyday Canadians will at some time in their life experience that. And most days it's okay. But at one point there's a critical mass of conflict that builds inside us and it ju I just can't do this anymore. When the human being asks himself, I don't know how I'm gonna go to work again today because I can't do this anymore, I can't. I just can't see myself doing, that's the moral, it's, this is it, it's happening, right? And so what do we do about it, right? Yeah, and, and I think, again, translating that to today, it's um, those in healthcare knowing they could have saved somebody, but the system or their boss or whatever 
prevented them from doing that. I think that's where that moral injury comes from. Right. And it's um, people that are uh, firing people that they know shouldn't be, um, that it's just a political issue and right. that they it just doesn't sit well. So it, it really does transfer to today. And I think employers as well as leaders can think about it once we understand it um, and do something about it. What, what could possibly cause this? There's another concept that you taught me, which now has been used around the world um, and modified in different ways. And that is that continuum. The one that goes from green to, uh, to yellow, to orange, to red. And uh, tell me a little bit about why you introduced that concept and uh, how you see it being helpful in workplaces today. Right. Um, I think we, we often, when we work in mental health or when leaders and people are trying to understand mental health, the only basis of comparison is, is physical injuries, let's say, in, a, in an occupational health and safety environment in a workplace. And so is Bob healthy or is he sick? Uh, does, you know, does Bob have a broken leg, right? And so we're always grasping, what, how do we compare those things? And as I was working back at National Defense, uh, trying to create a culture that understands the human mind a little more, not from a psychology perspective, but from a human perspective, it dawned on me that we had to break it down a little bit. Because of course, I was in a very kinetic workplace where we, we train hard, uh, we fight hard, uh, we, we injure hard, right? So it's very clear for, for people in a workplace like my past workplace, when people are healthy or not. Somebody gets shot, they're clearly injured, and we know exactly what to do. If somebody sprains an ankle on a morning run, very clearly we know what to do, right? And so we were in a culture that completely understands people's responsibilities in that context and was grasping at how do we transfer that knowledge to the mental health spectrum now? So developing a different lens, a completely different lens was essential in my, in, in my opinion, so that we understand broken leg, not broken leg. That's, that's sort of green and red, right? But with mental health, as you and I both know, it, it may not occur that way all the time. And so there is often a slippery slope. It takes time. And, 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 uh, and of course, um, you know, the goal is to go back to the green zone, essentially, right? So when you're having good days and you're healthy mentally and, and everything is going well, but when you slip in the yellow and when it gets progressively worse, and, and nowadays, I mean, we work with patients in inpatient units uh, in the healthcare system. They're clearly in that red zone, right? But our goal when we work with these patients is to move them back to the green zone, but it's not going to be automatic. The cast will not come off, right? And so at the time when I created that model, it was to pivot the mind, educate a, an entire workforce around that concept. Uh, and, and, and I'm glad it, 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 it's still holding together, you know, years later. Yeah. yeah, I love the concept because we watch people's behaviors change and we often make assumptions about it. We have judgments about it 
well, aren't you in a bad mood today? Or, right. you know, how come you're no longer a team player? Why aren't you engaging? And often right. their productivity is still happening then. They're performing, they're right. doing their job. We just think that they woke up and decided to be more difficult. And, right. and we don't see that maybe their stress levels, maybe their mental health is struggling. And by introducing this concept that it's not just I'm well and then I'm not, that right. uh, the other piece to that, Stefan, for me, is that I now catch myself earlier and mm. I don't wait until I hit a wall. I don't wait until I burn out. Right. I don't wait until I'm right. not coping. I uh, take action earlier. Um Another concept that you introduced to me that I really was not aware of is that of peer support. And that it sounded to me in the beginning that peer support was, um, you know, somebody who's your buddy, somebody who's your friend, and right. they're just going to chat with you. You worked to create a structure guidelines, a real um, effective system around this concept. Can you share a bit about what that is and how it supports psychological health and safety in the workplace? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, some of the some of the thinking behind, I believe, my motivation for raising the importance of this is that we live in a world well, the only world I've ever lived in is, is no more than 56 years old for me, right? So I don't know anything before that. Are and you but, just pointing out that I'm older than you again? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we live in a world that is marred with policies and procedures and 1-800 numbers and services and programs and toolboxes and the whole thing, right? Where everything is mechanical to some degree. And uh, organizations are creating committees and they're developing strategies. And I'm not, I'm not making light of all of this, by the way. It's, it's, it's all important. It's all part of that cocktail, right? But where, where I think we, we go wrong is that we don't truly, truly, truly empower human beings to be part of the rehumanization process of any organization. Um, so these committees that sit in boardrooms and strategize and create documents and, and all of this, it's not unimportant. I run a small company now. We're 38 people in my ecosystem now. I started a company of one and now we're 38 people, right? And uh, I understand the boardroom requirements and, and all of this stuff. Um, but in all of that, through the through the last decade and a half, the proliferation of 1-800 numbers and you know, uh, conflict resolution people and all this, what has happened unintentionally is we've basically outsourced all of the human aspects of people's jobs and um, the people aspects of people's jobs. And therefore, we live in a world now where, back to my physical injury analogy, we live in a world that Here's the example, Marianne. So let's pretend you're the CEO or the president of a company that washes windows, all right? And you have 25 employees. I'm out on a site on a given Wednesday with Bob, the window washer. He climbs a ladder, falls off his ladder, breaks a leg. 
whether you empowered me, you sent me to first aid training or not, you could have done nothing as a leader. Good chances are that I'm not going to ignore Bob, right? Because society and, and I will, I will call 911. I'll go to Bob, say, Bob, you okay? I'll do something like that. Flip that over to the mental health side now. What do we tell people in organizations? We essentially communicate to people, you know, many things. But one of the things I find ironic is we'll tell people, if you ever struggle with a mental health problem, call the EAP. And by the way, Mary, and I'm for EAP. I'm not against EAP. But we say to people, if you're not well, call the EAP. That's exactly like telling Bob, if you ever fall off your ladder, don't count on anybody to support you. Call 911. Get yourself to a hospital. Go look after yourself, right? Now, that's not intentional, but the way we've been dealing fundamentally with mental health is essentially the equivalent of what I just painted as a picture, which, which is unfathomable. We would never say to employees, if ever you fall off a ladder, break a leg, don't count on your colleagues, call 1-800 number. So the whole foundational principles around peer support is to create a workplace culture with human beings capable, willing, and able to actually support other people through hardship, whatever that is. And the beauty of this is that it transcends well beyond the, the traditional clinically diagnosed mental health language that we know of. So this is not only for the depressed and the burnt out and the, the people who are traumatized. It's for people who are in bad marriages, who are abused at home. It's for people who lost a child. It's for people who have a son or a daughter that has cancer. It's for people who have a aging parents who are hardship is the workplace peer support diagnosis. It's not a mental health diagnosis. It's hardship. It's Marianne that's going through a hard time. And instead of walking away when Marianne's a little moody, then we lean in because we recognize maybe Marianne's yellow. So let's not wait till on the spectrum, right? So let's not wait till Marianne burns out and leaves the workplace to then apply hundreds of thousands of dollars of benefits and pharmacology and doctors and psychiatrists. Why don't we start offering support to Marianne when she's starting to have bad days, regardless of what causes her bad days? And that can be done in multiple ways. And I say, we can't forget our people. Every workplace today is equipped with the human resource capacity to help itself. We just don't leverage that workforce, right? And they're already in the payroll. Imagine that. You don't have to pay them. And they will be happy to support others if only we give them the opportunity, right? So that's my spiel on that piece, Marianne. Yeah, it's it, the kind of culture that we all want to be a part of. And, um, but you go beyond, and this is what I think is so important for employers to understand, is um, you go beyond just let's all be touchy-feely, if you will, um, and caring to actual principles that you're asking people who want to raise their hand and say, I want to be a peer supporter, principles that they need mm -hmm. to learn that they need to embody. Can you speak a little bit about what that is? Right. I think those, those principles you're talking about are the, 
the key elements that were important to, to sess out or tease out 20 some years ago when I launched the, my first program. And by the way, I did not invent peer support. Peer support existed way before I even touched this. And there are multiple people involved in this field. Um, and it started really at the grassroots, um, you know, at the community mental health level. All I did is take something that I thought works really well out there and I import it into a very large workplace, very large accountable workplace where um, and, and try to bring all of the, necessi the necessary accountability structures and, as you say, principles and uh, to ensure that the program was sustainable, that uh, people couldn't do whatever they wanted, not because I wanted to control the conversation but because we have to make sure that we don't do harm uh, unintentionally by going too far and, and uh, by, by breaching boundaries, um, by not understanding uh, you know, the stages of recovery or, or things of that nature. Therefore, building this framework, building um, a clear training curriculum, building even more important than that, what kind of people can actually become peer supporters? The fact that you wanna help people is not the only criteria, right? You as an aspiring peer supporter must bring into the program innate qualities, innate competencies that you're never gonna learn. You just, they, they inhabit you. This is the way you think. And therefore screening people into that process ensures for us today, you know, years later, that we can actually teach them how to be a peer supporter that, that doesn't breach boundaries. That, that doesn't go too far, that goes far enough, that is capable of complementing the recovery of somebody's um, uh, uh, journey uh, and not go against what doctors are trying to do if there's doctors involved uh, and respecting those boundaries is so important. So yeah, it's one thing to be nice to people and wanting to help, but there's a lot more because words matter in mental health, right? If, if you have a broken leg, and uh, we're having a beer and we're having a chat about your accident and all that. And we're talking about it. So how did it happen? My words to you will not make that leg more broken. In mental health support, words matter, right? And, and, and what comes, what, the relationship matters, right? Um, and so that's why all this structure is necessary. At the end of the day, once we've created this, the structure empowers a very safe um, conversation relationship with two human beings uh, that is complementary to everything else happening around that human being, be it uh, clinical support, disability management, and all of these other things, right? Yeah. Yeah, I also see it as really helpful for those leaders who are not comfortable speaking to somebody about their mental health. They wanna speak about work. They wanna speak about, you know, helping you be successful to do your work and to perform. But when it comes to speaking to someone that um, may be uh, seeming to speak about things that are not in touch with reality, having a peer supporter who says, yeah, I'll go in, I'll have that conversation and then we can decide you know, what sort of support this person needs um, takes some of the pressure off. Um, they could even go in with the leader, but it really is um, for employers 
about risk mitigation. It's about improving the comfort level um, of leaders. Um, and then of course, at its basic, it's taking care of your employees. Uh, so many benefits there. Right. One thing that may be interesting to your audience is a piece of research that is now a little dated, the Hoag study, which looked at the perception of employees inside organizations uh, when they have or not have mental health challenges. And the importance of this study is that it was a groundbreaking piece of research because Asking people how they feel about their organization is one thing. Being able to parse out who, who's who anonymously is another thing. In other words, look at it this way. If you, in this study, ask 6,000 human beings, their perceptions. In other words, how would you feel, Stefan, uh, if you ever developed a mental health problem inside your company? Do you think your company would be supportive? Do, would you be embarrassed? Do you think it would harm your career, right? So you ask those questions. And now in the data set, you can actually figure out because in, in the survey, there's scales, there's diagnostic scales hidden in there. And you can parse out the people when they responded, did they likely have a mental health challenge at the time they responded versus those who did not? In other words, folks, if you ask a healthy worker, do you think you would be embarrassed if you ever developed a mental health challenge? and I'm healthy when I respond, my, my response is probably going to say, no, I don't think I'd be too embarrassed. Ask me again when I am depressed. My answer will be very different. Therefore, for your listeners, it's extremely important to understand the impact of that. Because when managers and organizations try to do the right thing with a person that is not well psychologically, it might backfire, not because of your action. Because the state of, and I'm not blaming the patient here, I'm not blaming the employee, but it is absolutely understandable that the employee who's not well will not receive what you're trying to do as an organization well because of the power differentials, the fear for your career, because now you fear losing your job. Add in a peer supporter, anonymous, no power differential and has lived through a similar condition. That is the game changer. The conversation is very different between a person who is struggling and a person who struggled in the past with the skills and competencies and policy framework to have those conversations than with the boss or the manager. And so I hear so often, you know, I, you know, Stefan, do you have a minute? I have this manager, really good manager employee goes off on sick leave for mental health reasons. The manager says, I'm going to call Marianne to see how she's doing. And Marianne got upset and hung up the phone and said, call Sun Life or call Great West Life if you want to know when I'm coming back to work. And the manager got all upset. Well, to me, it's completely understandable. The person at home sick is living the Hoag study. They're not in a good place. And as well-intentioned as the intervention was, it can backfire, throw in a peer supporter in there, and you have a completely different conversation, right? So to your point, it is adding uh, a few feet on that lever to support people to add a program like that for sure. Yeah, to make it more psychologically safe for those for whom 
um, right. dealing with right. these issues, right? right? Um, and it's not yeah. to take away from the manager's responsibility, but at one point, with all this power, you have to you you have to understand the limitations, right? Uh, right. Yeah. The, the yeah. things that work when somebody is well and are very effective may not be when somebody Correct. is is right. not well. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Stefan, speak a little bit about how you have seen the concept um, of psych health and safety evolve. I mean, we're, we're now going into 10 years of the standard, if you can believe it. And uh, we're opening it up. We're looking at things like the standard um, and how it could help small business more, the standard and how it can uh, pr promote inclusivity. Um, and, and how it can align with the ISO standard. But from your vantage point, what do you see as having changed or evolved or have we? Well, from the perspective I have, uh, the vast majority of clients, and, and by the way, you know that we don't only do peer support, that we do other things, but our flagship service offering in, in my company is these, these large-scale programs for peer support. Ironically, Marianne, and you and I haven't talked in, in a while now, but ironically, all of our clients, no, not all, the vast majority of our clients are, are led by people who are motivated and driven by different drivers, if you wish, than those leaders who will gravitate to the psych, psych standard. And I'm not saying one is bad, one is good. What, I'm, what I've experienced is a very low percentage of our clients who pursue these non-clinical approaches, be it our manager training, which is very non-clinical, sort of peer support based, right? We teach managers how to be more human with their people as opposed to be more less procedural, right? And, and so all of our clients uh, have a different way of thinking than clients who will say, well, no, that, that's not for us, right? And I'm not, I'm not comparing it to say one is better than the other, but what I've experienced is that those who gravitate to the psych standard will likely not be interested in these non-clinical programs. And, and actually, they don't come to us, right? Those who come to us are organizations that the leadership is a little more risk tolerant. Uh, leaders, I think, uh, are in it for a couple of more years, and they understand that fixing their problems from a, from a psych standard perspective is more than, it, just nothing to do with the psych standard, but it, it, it requires leveraging, rehumanizing the workplace, right? Less than the procedures. Um, and so that's been my experience. Um, now, and I, I have followed the work of the psych standard and it's doing a lot of good for those organizations that it speaks to, but there's there's organizations that it doesn't speak to. And for some reason, you know, some of these people will come to us. I remember a, a gentleman that will remain nameless who was on the Workforce Advisory Committee. Uh, and you'll remember who it is, but I don't want to quote names out of sort here. He said, I don't need the psych standard. And he was the VP of HR in a fairly large organization. He said, I don't need the, the psych standard. He said, I understand and I'm supportive of the psych standard, but 
But at my stage and my, now I don't think he was, he was not being obnoxious or he wasn't being smart, right? He's a very good man. Uh, and so, but those who need that must have it. And therefore, this is why I think that the beauty of Canada and what you have worked on and Dr. Arnold and the Psych Standard and the Commission and all that work has allowed the buffet of things for organization to consider to grow. And now there's more to consume, right? And so if it's the right fit, then, then, then it, it will have the desired impact. But for some, it, it's not the right fit, right? And we just have to, and, and same for peer support, right? It's, it's not a placebo. It's not, it's not for everyone, yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. What I say all the time is that you can start improving psychological health and safety by just asking the question, how will this right. plan, this policy, this change, this process impact the psych health and safety of our stakeholders? And that the what the standard gives you is that framework where you can go back and say, okay, we're ready to do something else. What else right. might we right. be able to do? But right. the um, idea that do checking things off of a list are going to um, be the end result is, is just right. not what it is. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. You need to start where your employees are at and uh, make changes based on what they need. It's interesting because we're dealing with a, a very large client right now. We're, we do not have a contract with them yet. Uh, hopefully we do. Um, and as you may know, Marianne, we actually have helped a couple of clients with the psych standard, uh, a couple of one very large organization. And we have our own survey uh, that measures against the risk factors. We've added three, I never told you, we've added three risk factors to the psych standard. We've, we've added trauma, actually. We've added moral conflict. We've added fatigue to our survey, right, to measure the 13 plus these three. And so we have, we have a service offering to do that. And uh, this very large client, I've recommended to them three times now that they should go down this route. We need to, we need, we need to know your start point here. We need to understand what's going on in the organization. And they're extremely resistant. And I do not understand why. So I am for the psych standard. I even have a service offering. I've developed a large survey where, you know, and I can't get this particular client with over 85,000 employees to, to even bite, you know, and I'm not trying to lure him in. This is, I think this is a very sound methodology to put a large organization through. And for some reason, it's not. So of course we pivot to other services. Again, case in point, right? Um, it's for some, it's not for others. Uh, but what I do know in my heart of heart is that this client is committed, no less committed to creating a psychologically safe environment for all his, her people, right? So that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal, whatever process is used, um, right? That, that the standard is just one tool and there's so many more and just right, to, right. to do it um, and, and find what's gonna work for you, find what's gonna be helpful. Um, right. In Australia, uh, the group Flourish DX, who actually supports this podcast, um, came up with a new way of combining psych health and safety with employee well-being. 
And uh, it's funny because uh, some people said, well, you know, it's competing with guarding mine. So obviously you're not going to uh, suggest it's good. And I just, I feel like all of it's good, right? That all of the different things that people are right. doing, if we're going to change workplaces, we need to have that, as you say, that buffet, we have to mm-hmm. have Mm-hmm. the offerings and let employers do whatever works for them, but to do something. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so what's next for you for mental health innovations? What kinds of um, projects are you working on now? Well, you know, we've, um, we're still monitoring, I think, well, we, I am still sort of curious as to how, workplaces recover from the pandemic, honestly. Um, I speak to, you know, countless potential clients or people like-minded, right, every week, like you do, Marianne, and they all say, oh my God, you're in the, you're in the mental health business. That's the, the best business to be in in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm thinking, well, I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen that yet. I mean, business is okay, but it's not like people have been knocking, you know, uh, tearing down our doors there to, to, um, which I find interesting. And I'm also interested to see what the longitudinal effect is going to be on human beings. Uh, And then what organizations are going to do about it, because we can't forget in our day and age now, uh, the pandemic is a moment in our history. It will end. (laughs) Uh, uh, Although many people are, of course, are retired, but then we're going back to uh, the mental health epidemic of the pre-pandemic days, plus the cumulative wear and tear this pandemic has had on organizations, on governance, on boards, uh, on on the finances of of operations, on the security uh, of of markets. Uh, And so for my little company, I'm wondering, what does that mean? And then I'm looking at our clients, what does it What's going to happen after? Are leaders um, uh, going to put in place, starting very soon, what they need to have in place to support the walking wounded of the post-pandemic? I don't know. I don't see that yet, right? Um, And I think that's very important because just like fighting a war, you have those visible casualties, the people that get medevaced on choppers and that go to the hospital um, for, for limb amputations and gunshot wounds and all this. But those casualties pale in comparison to the psychological casualties of war. And I think this pandemic is going to have the exact same effect. In all these organizations, People now, despite the fact that the news says people are burning out and hospitals are are at their critical breaking point, I do not believe that. I've seen what humans are capable of. And despite the fact that my heart goes out to all those frontline healthcare workers and those nurses and those, I know they're going to keep going to work. They are resilient. Despite the fatigue, most will continue, right? And therefore, what is the impact of that? That's what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about, you know, today. I'm concerned about tomorrow. So what are we doing inside our business? Well, we are, we are trying to adapt to uncertainty, 
of what will the demand be uh, afterwards and how can we scale up to support as many Canadians as we can and as many companies as we can being relatively small and nimble. Uh, so we're slowly scaling up. We're, we're pivoting to more asynchronous training. We're investing quite a lot of capital in pivoting. Uh, we had pivoted, Marianne, to virtual training before the pandemic. So that, that was good and timely. But now we're, we're trying to pivot to offer clients uh, more asynchronous ways of learning and putting in place things. You know, the, the days of let's get 30 people in a boardroom. Uh, we all long that, but I don't know how realistic that's going to be, right? So it's very hard to predict, isn't it? Oh, bowl of word salad thrown at you, Marianne, there, but that's that's what's happening, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I used to say because I'm trying to shift my mindset that I can deal with anything but uncertainty, but obviously I can deal with uncertainty because I've been doing it for two years. Exactly. But it it, right. it is more of a challenge and. Uh, I think that thinking about psych health and safety in the workplace is going to be critical to deal with all of these things, the pivoting, the, um, the range of emotions that people are going to have from fear to exhilaration when they return to uh, a workplace, especially if they've been away for two years, but also the fact that um, many leaders have never managed a hybrid team and they're going to have to figure it out. So there's a big learning curve for people who may already be exhausted um, trying to manage a remote team. Now they're going to have a hybrid, which will be more challenging. Yeah. Any other words of wisdom um, or advice that you want to leave our listeners with before I ask you my final question? Well, I, I think I know what your final question is going to be. And before that, maybe to set the stage for that, I think that human beings would be well advised to be realistic about a whole bunch of things. Um, and what I mean by that is, while it's important that leaders, you know, create safe, uh, safe workplaces and psychologically healthy safety workplaces. What I have noticed in the last couple of decades is that human beings may be on a trajectory of being as a species a little more demanding, a little more entitled, a little more victim oriented, a little uh, more um, unrealistic about the world and life in general. Life is, life is hard. The pandemic is certainly, right? And for us born in a country like Canada and we live in Canada, it's, it's, it's less hard. Of course, it's a lot harder if you're born in another part of the world, but it can be hard here as well. And so for human beings, and I work with leaders every week, if not every day, and I, I'm very committed to supporting leaders to become better leaders. And I'm committed to be a better leader myself, but I'm also committed to have balance. And it's impossible for an organization to bend itself into a pretzel to accommodate a hundred people who have a hundred different demands and who have a hundred different understandings of what it is to be safe inside that workplace, right? 
uh, and I'm dealing with a, a situation of my own right now in my little organization where one person is saying, I'm not sure it's psychologically safe for me to do this. And I understand the discomfort. I understand that it is hard, but facing hardship doesn't mean it's psychologically unsafe. Going through a morally conflicting event or a difficult day should not equate in our mind, I'm now traumatized or my mental health is, is bad. What about having a bad day, right? Uh, not every experience in our life's journey will automatically result in, 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 in becoming victims, right? So I, I guess I'm showing my age a little bit. Uh, I'm very, I can be capable of a lot of empathy and I'm a very compassionate human being, but I think psychological safety is achieved when leaders take those actions that are necessary, but workers also own up on their responsibility to actually uh, embrace the fact that they're also responsible for their mental health, right? Ultimately, right? If, if it's not the right fit, right? Uh, and I remember, Marianne, as crude as this may sound, with my own peer supporters at National Defense, there was one particular peer supporter who was a, not a bad person, but constantly bucking the system, did not want to do it this way, right? And I remember telling the person, listen, I think you're going to have to leave. This is a McDonald's franchise. We don't have hot dogs on the menu, right? And I use those very, very terms. And I think we have to be brave enough to have those conversations sometimes. And that person, to his credit, said, you know what? You're right. I'm not happy here. And so this is where I think the shared responsibility and that concept is so important. I am not saying for a second that leaders should abdicate their responsibility. No, but it is a shared responsibility, right? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. I think when there is psychological safety, that's when there can be that conversation about individual employee responsibility to themselves and to each other. But when the psychological safety is not there because of leader action, then I think that conversation is met with cynicism, right? It's, it's like, I love the concept of resilience. I think it's um, my quality of life is definitely predicated on my level of resilience. And I think I want to continue to build it up. However, I don't think resilience should be, let's blame the victim. We'll have um, a difficult right. relationship or work right. environment and you- Be resilient, that's right. Be resilient, you that's suck right. it up. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. 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 yeah, so I think there's, there's work that has to happen at leadership level in order to empower right. employees to take that responsibility right. for self and others. Right, very hard to be resilient in an organization that hits you with a two by four every day, right? So absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's the issue with the pandemic writ large is that any of us can be resilient for, you know, a couple of days or a few months right. or maybe even a year. But hey, like at what point do we say that's enough? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, but then you hear about people who live through the Spanish flu and the depression and World War One and World War Two. And, right. and you think, okay, well, they were asked to be resilient many times and they stepped right. up and they did it. 
All right, here's the final question, Stefan. And that is, how would you describe a psychologically healthy and safe workplace to someone who has no concept of what it means? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Well, I think I'm gonna answer the question by first saying that I am still struggling today at ensuring that this is achieved in my little organization. And I say this in, in all humility because it doesn't matter how often I say, call me anytime. Uh, if ever you need help, I'm there to support you. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what I say, even what I do. Um, for some reason, you know, some of us <laughs> have this thing about us or this, this aura that uh, insists that people need to be successful all the time, right? It's like they want to live up to, right? And they don't want to disappoint, right? And that's one of my struggles. For some reason, I have amazing human beings, but there are, and you know how approachable I am. I'm pretty approachable. This is what I am. I'm like that, you know? And, but when it matters, some of my people fear approaching me, right? And I am still struggling with what is wrong with me. And I think what's wrong with me is that I don't spend enough time developing solid relationships solid enough in the eyes of my people. I think my relationship is good with people, but I'm not them, right? So I'm saying that I'm throwing myself under the bus because I want people to hear me say to them that despite your best efforts sometimes, that may not be enough, but don't quit, don't stop, question yourself. Uh, be, be inquisitive as to what else you need to do. And I think the goal is to create that psychologically healthy workplace and safe workplace where in my case, that doesn't happen anymore. That's the last frontier for me. When somebody's struggling, they don't struggle for weeks before they come to me. They struggle for a minute, right? And therefore, the result of all this is for where your employees will, um, and everybody in the organization, it's, it's not about safe. It's about, it's comfortable. This doesn't feel like work. You know, all of the stars have aligned, very hard to achieve perhaps, where this doesn't feel like it's work. It doesn't feel like it's hard every day. It's hard every once in a while, but not hard every day where I go back home at night and I don't need to recompose myself, reconstitute myself. I can actually enjoy my evening. I'm not burnt out at the end of the day, right? These are all the things that constantly occur around us. So this, to me, to me, the psychologically healthy, safe workplaces are those ecosystems that I have yet to discover where all of the people experience that, right? That sense of, of safety with the boss, their physical safety. It's okay to be vulnerable, right? At the end of the day, I don't have to reconstitute my, and all that stuff, right? But I got to tell you, it's a lot easier said than done. And I don't have a big company. 
right? So I just, I want to share with you that one of the things that I've learned, because I think like you, my intentions um, are always good. I would never want to harm anybody or um, let my uh, leadership get in the way of somebody else's well-being, but I have. And uh, one of the things that I learned is that what I call passion, and I mean, my passion compared to your passion is like minuscule because <laughs> you're just so passionate about what you're doing. Um, but what I call passion, other people have called intimidation. And so when I think I'm talking right. about something, right. so they're struggling with a concept and I'm saying, yeah, but you know, we can do this. And it's like, I didn't feel their pain. I didn't feel what they're going through. And like you, I said, it's not enough that my intention was good. It's that I have to now learn that when I'm feeling passionate, that I'm aware of it. Right. And I dial it back to say, tell me how that hits you. What do you think about that? And uh, right. yeah, but psych health and safety, like occupational health and safety is never a one and done. It's never completed. The checklist not is not a destination, never... right? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's every day. But uh, I would say to you, Stefan, uh, anybody who knows you, knows your heart, but that the people that work for you um, may not know that and may not know that, okay, you sound like this is it, this is command and control, this is what I'm doing. But in fact, all they'd have to say is, I have a different opinion, can we talk about it? And sometimes we can't sell hot dogs, but sometimes we can modify <laughs> the menu, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there exactly. is that possibility. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for spending the time um, with me. I'm really happy to reconnect with you, my friend. And uh, the there will be little clips of this podcast that will end up on social media. And um, people who want to know more can go to the Flourish DX LinkedIn. They can go to my LinkedIn. I know they can find you through Mental Health Innovations on LinkedIn as well. And uh, yeah. We'll, we'll take it from there. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.